Dragonfly is a tool to build your own Google Earth and street view of the assets that you care about. And you can do that with a drone. It'll capture imagery at extremely high resolution accuracy down to a millimeter per pixel that you can explore, you can analyze and understand. And historically, what people have done is they use tools like surveying wheels. And literally, it's people walking along with a surveying wheel, climbing on a roof with a tape measure and clipboard to survey a roof. Now, instead of taking those kind of manual measurements, they can just get a drone to fly over the top, capture hundreds of photos of their site. And from those photos, we can create these extraordinarily accurate 3D models from a house all the way up to a massive oil refinery. Welcome to the Entrepreneurs for Impact podcast. My name is Chris Wedding. As a former environmental private equity investor, four times founder, climate tech CEO, coach, and professor, I launched this podcast to share the entrepreneurial journey, practical tips, and hard-earned wisdom from CEOs and investors tackling climate change. And if you like what you hear, please leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. This is the number one way that listeners can learn more about the climate CEOs and investors I interview. All right, let's get started. My guest today is Mike Wynn, founder and CEO of Drone Deploy. Drone Deploy is a software company harnessing drones to provide interior and exterior visual data, any altitude, any angle, all in one platform. They've raised over $140 million and serve 5,000 businesses in 180 countries, including 18 of the 20 largest construction companies. In this episode, we talked about why he was happy have an angry customer in the early days, what a digital twin is and why they matter, how they're making you work on critical infrastructure safer, quicker, and more productive by avoiding dull, dirty, and dangerous work, how his love of remote control helicopters and a trip to South Africa helped start this business, the role of timing in determining the success of any startup, including this one, how AI and robots can make us superhuman, how to procrastinate in a productive way, and a whole lot more. Hope you enjoyed it. Please give Mike and Drone Deploy a shout out on LinkedIn, Slack, or Twitter by sharing this podcast with your people. Thanks. Mike Wynn, founder and CEO of Drone Deploy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Chris. So if folks were to go to your website or other websites, they would see at least three very shocking, impressive statistics. Not that this summarizes your entire company's history over the last 10 years, but they're, they're wonderful stats. So here they are, right? 5,000 businesses that you all count as customers who trust you to make their operations more efficient. About $140 million of outside capital raised to grow your company over the last 10 years or so. And in one particular industry that you all serve, agriculture, 310 million acres surveyed through this kind of AI robotics combo. The question I want to ask, no, no simple answer is, which of these three wonderful stats was harder to achieve, Mike? Yeah, it's, been, it's super exciting to see the, the company you build like, yeah, create, create impact like that. We have 5,000 customers and we've got something like 20 to 30,000 people using our product. All of them build upon each other. So you can imagine more customers means more usage, which helps you create more revenue and therefore raise more money. The hardest thing, of course, is getting off the ground, getting somebody to care. 
I remember going back in time, beginning our first customers and how we were so excited when we had the first angry customer. And uh, it was back in 2014 and our product at the stage was very immature and not yet reliable. And it was like, we really needed to work. And it's like, oh, wow, now we've actually got somebody depends on our product for the first time. And that was kind of a, a really important moment you don't think about. And then everything we've ever done at this company has been because of customers saying they need to do something. They need us to extend to do one more thing. And so like you exist in a company, as a company, there's this notion, I was an economics degree, but there's this notion that companies of profit that's from the 1970s. I think companies exist to solve a problem and to solve a problem for people. And so that 5,000 customers is the thing that's actually most important to us. Well, luckily, as it turns out, when businesses solve problems, they often make profit as well. <laughs> yeah, that's a consequence. Yeah. Yeah. You said an interesting thing that you were almost happy to have an angry customer. It makes me think of that that quote that like, no press is bad press, right? I mean, <laughs> a customer is still a customer. As long as you can make them happy again, they're, they're a customer. Yeah. You keep figuring shit out, right? Well, I think it's a, a signal. You can imagine you start building a thing. And I can imagine you, just as you started this podcast. And what's exciting is when you actually get people listening. And it's not just your mom <laughs> or your friends. And like you, you want to get that email. Like, when's the next one? When are you going on vacation? That's when you really know you're making an impact when people are starting to like expect and rely on on you for something. Mm -hmm. You said an interesting thing earlier where the customers would ask you for the next thing, right? And I know from my prior ventures that it's a balance, right? Between listening to customers, what they want, and then, you know, kind of being a Steve Jobs, like, I'll tell you what you want. You, you're not quite sure. How do you balance what you think the market needs versus what customers will, because you, you serve many customers across many industries, they can't all be right, or they can't all be the right strategic direction for you all to invest in software people, et cetera. No, you're right. I mean, it's, it's funny. There's obviously that, that quote in the faster horse concept, and there's something to that, but it's, that's the exception. You can imagine for us, so we're, my background is, the three founders of this company are technology people, and we serve customers in agriculture and construction and energy, all sorts. And uh, there's no way that we can be experts in all of their fields. So it's where it's come down to our customers asking for things. It's like, well, we've said, when the first person says, hey, can you do this thing? You say, no, that's interesting. But by the time the third or fourth person says the same thing, you're like, okay, maybe there's something here. And it's not something you just say yes to. But after you dig around and you figure out, okay, what's the cost benefit of this thing? Can we truly solve this? Are we the best people to solve this? And then you can go about building it. And I'd say there are literally hundreds of things that come together to make our products a day that just arrived because our customers who themselves are technology missionaries have come to us and said, hey, look, we love the products. This is the one extra thing that will make a huge difference to us. Can you help? Mm -hmm. Well, we've teased the listeners enough over the last few minutes. Give us, uh, give us the pitch. Who slash what is Drone Deploy? So yeah, Drone Deploy is the world's leading industrial reality capture platform. And what that means to people that are not in the industry is it's basically a tool to build your own Google Earth and street view of the assets that you care about. So for example, your construction site, your house to install solar panels on. We have lots of environmental users, so your wetlands. And you can do that with a drone and with 360 cameras. You can fly the drone completely autonomously through our software. It will capture imagery at extremely high resolution accuracy down to, in some cases, down to a millimeter per pixel and down to about an inch of accuracy that you can explore, you can analyze and understand. 
And it's the baseline of kind of GIS and inspection for many, many industries now. Can you give us that kind of the metrics for granularity or resolution again? You mentioned, was it a millimeter per pixel? And what was the next one? Yeah, down to a millimeter per pixel. <laughs> Sorry, I'm uh, swapping between units of measurement here, but an inch of accuracy. So, yeah. Do you know what a millimeter, 125th of an inch <laughs> of uh, resolution. And then accuracy is really interesting. You can, I'm, I'm by no means an expert, but if you want to talk about accuracy, there's so far that you can go down that there's so much depth and detail and our customers in GIS in construction, in mining, for example, they really need to know where everything is down to an inch. Am I building the building in the right place? And being wrong is extraordinarily expensive. And historically what people have done is they use tools like surveying wheels and literally it's people walking along with a surveying wheel or out with a tape measure, climbing on a roof with a tape measure and clipboard to survey a roof. Now, instead of taking those kind of manual measurements, they can just get a drone to fly over the top, capture hundreds of photos of their site. And from those photos, we can create these extraordinarily accurate 3D models of whatever it is from a house all the way up to a, a massive oil refinery. And you mentioned this phrase, uh, industrial reality capture. And where I've seen on your website, where you go next is this, this digital twin concept. I think, you're, I think you're describing it in so many other words, but maybe just kind of hit it. What is a digital twin? A digital twin is it's basically a digital representation of an asset. And this is increasingly important to our customers across any industries, whether it's construction or kind of solar, oil and gas. So they want to understand what's happening in the physical world. And in our business and technology, it's very easy. We can know every click that happens on our products. But if you're a construction company, you can't put an IoT device on every brick or on every on corn plant. But you can get imagery of everything. And so we can create a digital twin, digital twin of their assets or you know, their fields, farmers' fields, through just capturing this imagery. We can be, help them understand the progress in laying foundations, digging trenches, the growth of their crops through getting this high resolution accuracy. And we can do this really cool measurement. We can actually, right now across America, farmers, cornfields and soybean fields are just starting to sprout. And one important decision they've got to make is, has the germination happened at a high enough rate? Has weather damaged, for example, those crops? Do I need to replant? And so historically, they've gone to their fields and literally counted the plants in certain areas and done samples. Now they can fly drones over the field about 30 feet and uh, we can use machine learning to count every crop in that field to help them understand not just the economic decision of should I start again and replant, but also how much fertilizer should I be putting down? Because where there's more plants, more success, you want more fertilizer and less less. So it just enables a million downstream decisions to really know what's happening with this, your digital twin of your asset. Mm -hmm. You've given us two examples already of how your solution is very different than the let's say old-fashioned, more manual method. I wonder if you, you can maybe talk about the quantification of the benefits. I mean, clearly it, it varies by customer and by sector and who knows what, but maybe what are the metrics? I mean, obviously dollars are, are part yeah. of that set of metrics you would use. I can imagine safety mm -hmm. is somewhere in there as well. Operating costs get lower. How do you compare contrasts? The, the problem being solved with you all versus without yeah. you all. I mean, that's, that's the big opportunity for us, but also the big challenge is we help our customers do a lot of different things. So I'll start with like the highest level is across pretty much every industry, especially right now in 2023, 
companies are looking to become more efficient. Their challenge is that input costs are rising, workforces are getting older, carbon emissions are going up when we need them to come down. And to become more efficient, they need to actually really know where the opportunities are to become more efficient. They need measurement. And I was saying measurement is hard. And if you go back to management 101 is you can't manage what you can't measure. So without real measurement, it's really hard for them to improve things. And the challenge today is we now sharing. It's like, it's hard to measure the real, real world. It's often it's manual. I was like walking around the fields. It's dull, dirty, and dangerous. Often we've got lots of gas inspectors going to dangerous places to understand what's going on. Instead, we can get robots and AI to do the work. We can empower those inspectors and their surveyors with a robot to do the work as opposed to them walking around. And the result is they can do it more safely. They don't have to go into the dangerous areas. They don't have to climb on roofs or repel off the side of a cooling tower. Instead, they can get the drone to do it. And so it's safer. It's a big impact. The second thing is faster. So for example, in solar surveying or residential solar, a surveyor can do twice as many roofs per day. And not only is it faster, it's more accurate. And so the error rate is much lower, which has downstream cost implications. That and the speed have downstream cost implications. And so it's cheaper for companies to use these technologies. And so a whole whole bunch of things coming together, being safer, that's kind of number one for a lot of industrial companies, but then creating the efficiency around how they do their work, providing them with more scale in a time when it's hard to recruit people to do all the jobs that need to be done. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's actually helping helping our critical industries meet the needs of modern society. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, how do customers pay? What's that model look like? It's a, where the software is a service business, so it's a subscription. Customers pay to kind of use the products and we say use as much of it as you want. Generally people charge pay per per, per user. And that one thing that's interesting for software as a service business is that we're, we're only as successful as our customers. So we really need to keep our customers using our product every year. And the name of the game is to land, to help them adopt their first robots and AI tools, but know that we only like one or 2% penetrated today. And so every year we've got to help them with more problems on more sites or more people. And that's kind of the, the big growth engine of our business. And your solutions come in at least two forms. There is the actual movement of a drone around some facility. And then there is the kind of hosting or maintenance of a digital twin somewhere for them to, I suppose, manipulate, utilize, et cetera. Yeah. Maybe tell us about I don't know, how often would you would you bring these drones, these robots to a site to create a new digital twin? Is this a, a yearly thing? I guess, obviously, if there were some sort of major retrofit or whatnot, well, yes, it happens after yeah. that that occurs. How often do the drones show up on site, if you will? Yeah, no, it totally depends on the use case. So I'd say I'll just pick a few. So for example, I was, I was sharing residential solar installations. So if you were to buy solar for your house today, it's quite likely you'll get a drone to come and survey the house. Instead of the guide climbing on the roof with a ladder, you'll come with a drone. And you only need that once to get the solar installed in your house. But if you go on the other end of the spectrum, you take construction. Most of our construction sites will be doing it once a week, capturing data because the site is continuously changing. And really what we're trying to get to in the long run is drones that are fully automated that can fly out of the box on a schedule where they might be flying every couple of hours. And so every change that happens on a job site can be documented. I see. Okay. And are there drone deploy personnel each time that a drone flies or is it you kind of empower customers with the drones 
to do it themselves. Yeah, we're, we're empower our customers. So it's, we have customers all around the world. They do about 2 million operations and flights every year. If drone deploy was an airport, we would be the busiest airport in the world on takeoff and landings. Yeah, and it's really enabling them. And they're the people, when you mentioned 300 million acres, they're the heroes going out there in the field, in the heat. It's not a lot in the software, it's pressing the button, but they're the ones going out there collecting the data. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Let's, uh, let's go back in time a second. So you talked about having your first angry customer being excited about that. <laughs> uh, what led you to create drone deploy in the earliest days, Mike? Well, that was a good couple of years ago. I've been a long time remote control helicopter hobbyist. I left school. I studied economics and math. And so with that, I went to work for a bank. And luckily, bank bonuses were, <laughs> were quite good. And with my first bank bonus, I bought myself an RC helicopter. And over time, I was also had a little bit of that ability to kind of program and things like that. So I started to learn about autopilots and how I could program this this helicopter to do things. And started to recognize that there was a real opportunity. Never before have people been able to use the sky above them productively. And now all of a sudden, you didn't need to have a, a pilot's license to be able to capture data about the things you cared about. And so we started off, looks at a whole bunch of use cases. And the biggest use case really drove the concepts behind this business was the three co-founders are all South African. I used to work for Google back in Ireland and support the South African market. And every time I went home to South Africa, they used to give me a security driver, which is funny as they going back to my home country, but those guys were often involved in anti-poaching and I was in talking to them and realizing that they had to monitor these vast, vast areas with a small number of people said, Hey, how useful would it be to have eyes in the sky? You could just have a remote control helicopter, a plane flying above to capture thermal imagery, to see people that shouldn't be there in the park. And uh, we went down the process looking at, okay, what did the solution look like? And along the way, we realized lots of people were building hardware, drone hardware. This is back in 2011, 2012, but no one was focusing on making software and making these tools easy to use for anyone. And we happened to be three software guys. They said, hey, actually, that's the problem we should solve. Let's make software that works on a mobile phone and makes it a button tap for a person to launch a drone, a flying robot, to capture data and get that data to where it needs to be. And yeah, we end up the next year starting drone deploy, moving to the United States to join an incubator. And we still solve that problem today. Generally, not, not very much on the security side or like anti-poaching, but across many markets like construction, et cetera, like we've talked about. So it would be easy for a listener to think, oh, well, this is cool. They, they realize there is this need and they launched the company and there's just a straight line up into the right, baby. Right? Yeah, All the easy. <laughs> What were some dead ends along the way? You're like, ah, oh, this is totally going to work, but it, but it didn't. Yeah. It reminds me, there's a great like comic online, I don't know, XKCD or somewhere where they've got this, like where how you imagine the journey from A to B and then what it actually is like, it's full with, with mountains and rivers that you got across and all sorts of challenges. Mm. Absolutely. There's been a lot of challenges along the way. There's so many milestones you need to cross and it's, it's always, there's lots to figure out and you really got to just persevere and get through it. One thing I remember doing through this incubator and the guy that ran the incubator said, look, if you know all the, if you knew about all the challenges ahead, you wouldn't start this. Use that kind of naivety or ignorance to your advantage. Just try and run through the walls. And that's what you got to do. And I'd say for anyone starting a startup is not, there's going to be a hundred reasons why it's not going to work. And that's why 
a lot of startups don't, don't quite get there, but you can't just focus on what's not going to work. You've got to focus on what's going to go wrong. You've got to think about what, what can go right. And that's one of the things that's been so valuable about being in this community of startup founders, that people do think in that way. They think, oh, what happens if, if this all works out? And amazing things can happen. Well, I'm pretty sure that being in the Bay Area broadly, most folks think about what can go right. And many, far, many fewer folks think about what can go wrong. So I think that, that that environment does help with the, it's not naivete, but optimism, right? Yeah. I think. Yeah, the the comment on how naivete is a blessing, I was uh, just this weekend, I was writing up 10, I think 10 good takeaways from my work uh, coaching like 100 plus climate CEOs. And that was, there was, that comment showed up basically where, that that is that's a blessing. It's a hard it's a hard road, but a fun road, but a but a hard road as well. Mike, what um what are some let's see I guess proof points or or examples perhaps what allowed you all to start raising this outside capital to pour biofuel fuel to pour fuel <laughs> on the fire of your old growth? I think that the starting point was when we started this company. We're actually very lucky on timing. There's been some analysis by some venture capital before and okay, what's the prime factor in a company succeeding and timing was actually the number one beyond even the team. Wow. Because yeah, being, there's a funny saying, being too early is the same as being wrong. So you got to pick up the right time. We were actually a little bit early for the industry, but we were the right kind of early for, for three first time founders. The market was just picking up and people could see this future. We're flying robots. We're going to be compelling kind of tools in the industrial context. And I think it's fun for any entrepreneur listening. The best thing that ever happened to us was that while we were in an incubator, one of our competitors raised a lot of money. And we were first-time founders, so we we took it initially. It's like, oh, no, is this, is this company, they've got all this, they've got $10 million. Sounds like they're going to do everything. Look at their amazing team. Look at their amazing investors. And so we took this like, oh, gosh, it was a massive threat. But actually, it was the best thing that ever happened to us because this company had gone around and educated all the investors on the opportunity. And they were taking a path, which was a hardware and software combo. We were taking just the software combo. And in fact, we were more interesting, I think, to a lot of investors because we had kind of smaller goals and there were big goals, but we just didn't have to do quite as much. And uh, that led to us kind of having a an audience that was kind of primed, that was interested. And uh, we came along and we were fortunate to have, I've got two really smart co-founders that are quite impressive. And a business idea that people thought, oh, that just might work, building software for drones. And uh, so that was just the start of it. Well, I wrote down two things here. One is that uh, you, you know you recognize timing is partly about luck, right? And timing super super important. The other comment, being too early, is also the same as being wrong, right? It's kind of like it's kind of like uh, being contrarian is a is a really great thing, but you got to be right as well as contrarian. Both yeah. of those things don't go. Contrarian <laughs> yeah, wrong is not helpful. No, it's not. No, it's not. Tell us, uh, tell us about something that you, or maybe you and your co-founders, strongly believe in, that is likely outside of the drone-specific business you're running, that has led you all to this point of, you know, creating a a, a pretty big company. Yeah. What are we contrarian on? <laughs> well, it doesn't need to contrarian, but, but just something you all strongly believe in, right? A kind of something that um, perhaps influences your culture or the way you think about strategy, perhaps. I'll tell you something that's interesting for what we do, and I think really influenced our 
success early on is one thing we really believed in is that people often divide up markets into like, okay, it's this type of person and this industry. But that's only one way to divide up a market. Like I think about a market as just a group of people that want something. And so initially when we started pitching our company, we we're always horizontal. And we said, look, we, people are going to use this for many different reasons. And it's very hard early on to tell which were the most important industries to go after. And we said, look, we're not going to go after agronomists in agriculture or project managers in construction. We're instead going to say everyone that wants to use a drone commercially, that's who our target is. We're just going to focus on those uh, those innovators, early adopters. And we had a lot of investors think that it was totally the wrong idea. Like, no, you have to focus on just one thing and focus can be a good thing. So we said, look, we got to focus on an even narrower audience, an audience that most people wouldn't even think about is just the people that really want this technology. And that to this day is so an important part of what we do. I have a strong belief. It's very hard to convince anyone to think differently. They've kind of got to go on that journey on them by themselves. They're not going to listen to some commercial company marketing at them. They've got to listen to their friends, their associates, their their colleagues. And so instead, focus on the people that really want to have a vision for your technology and let them be kind of the missionaries for your products instead of going out there and trying to change everyone's mind. Say, hey, you should all do some change management. Why aren't you adopting robots already? That's actually a very hard thing to do. Yeah, here, here. I think something else that listeners may be thinking about is uh, you, you've referenced AI and robots. And yeah, I think one, perhaps legacy, but but one interpretation is, oh, well, the, both of those are actually subtracting the number of jobs out there for folks to earn a good living at. I think you already partially described this, but let's just kind of hit it on the, hit it on the head. How do you respond to a, to a perspective uh, like that? I think we're very fortunate at this stage. There's so many stories and well-established kind of research on this that just shows you like, yeah, if you think at the first level is, yeah, using tractors, not oxen, it really did mean that there are fewer people working in fields. But what happened was that now it became a lot cheaper for everyone to buy food and we could move up the chain and solve bigger problems. And we're doing the same kind of thing where it's just like what we are is we're a tool that empowers field workers. We help those surveyors get off roofs and work twice as fast and deliver twice as much value, doing half as much work. And they can focus rather on understanding the, the measurements, making the decisions, and less about doing the kind of the dull, dirty, dangerous stuff. And this, uh, my, my favorite story is I was in banking. And so the, the favorite thing is that since the ATM were, was developed, the uh, <laughs> this might be changing now in a different way, but the number of bank workers multiplied, I think, in the, by, in the order of 10x. You thought, hey, we're taking the bank teller away. But the reality was that the ATM made banking accessible to everyone. And mm-hmm. so that point was very, very expensive. And so we're on this journey. I, I'm really interested in right now what's happening in the AI world. My two co-founders did their PhDs in machine learning. My background is also applied math, so did a lot of that. And one thing that's happening that's super exciting is the amount of progress in AI co-generation. And for a lot of people, they'll look at that and be like, oh my gosh, now programmers can be five or 10x more productive in a few years' time. Does that mean we need 10x fewer programmers? And I think it's the opposite. We're going to have 10x more programmers. Everyone's going to become a software engineer because we have these tools. And now you have this, the cost of doing this, of these tools and the ability to use them is going to, yes, it's going to become accessible to everyone. So it's going to mean even more people employed to do these things, but just people working on a higher level than they used to before. Yeah, there's uh, an author of a newsletter in the AI space, AI space, I'm forgetting his name, but on this LinkedIn, the title is Superhuman, right? Which is yeah. kind of what you're describing. It's like, 
well, AI and robots can make us all much more productive. Yeah, like, I mean, if I take that idea, and I, like, that's, that's what we try and do at our company, is making our field workers superhumans. We give them the ability to fly above their fields, see the drones, they can yeah. see, get the bird's eye view. They get the ability to see through walls because we take a photo internally of constructions of as things are being built. Mm-hmm. We allow them to go back in time because they could see what happened last week or last year on a job site. So there's a whole different like, number of ways that robots, AI, just, but we're just taking photos, gives people capabilities they would never have had before. Hmm. Superhuman, period. Awesome. Hey, it's Chris. Just a brief message from our sponsors, and we'll get back to the show. <laughs> Just kidding. We don't take sponsors. On the other hand, I do have the privilege of leading the only executive peer group community for growth stage CEOs, founders, and investors fighting climate change. With monthly group meetings, annual retreats, and one-on-one executive coaching calls, our members help each other boost revenue, impact, capital raised, clarity, confidence, work-life balance, and team effectiveness. Today's 30-plus members represent over $8 billion in market cap or assets under management for climate solutions. If you're interested, go to entrepreneursforimpact.com and join the waiting list today. All right, back to the show. Let's switch to to your path a little more, Mike. What kind of advice, looking back, might you give your younger self to be uh, happier, more effective on this path? I would know where, no idea where I learned this, but I think one thing is just really important to learn, especially as an entrepreneur, is this notion that no one knows what they're doing. Everyone's out there figuring it out. Right. Even the, the most successful people, they have figured things out, but they're still learning. And so just like to get through that notion of like, hey, it's kind of the imposter syndrome or the, the challenges of this being hard. It's just like, look, like everyone else is in that position too. Yeah. When I'm talking to, uh, I don't know, grad students of mine at Duke or UNC or just emerging professionals and looking for career advice. I say, look, you know, we're, we're all still figuring this out, including myself, right? Or the other is behind every beautiful logo and company brochure is, uh, is a hot mess, you know? Yeah. It's never as good as it looks on the outside. <laughs> How about some habits or routines, Mike, that keep you healthy, sane, and focused? And the reason I pause is I want to, I wanted to tell listeners that they can't see you, but here you are on this ten-year journey doing what you know a few others can, and you're smiling quite a lot, quite a lot, man. You're you're you know pretty look be pretty happy in your in your role here. Anyway, habits and routines. What you got for us? <laughs> well, I'm a happy right now. We are a big part of just recognizing what makes you happy, what gives you energy. There's a lot of things that suck about doing any job. Doesn't matter what job, even my job. As a founder, you just got to do whatever is required. And sometimes it might not be the thing that you want to do, but like, hey, what are the things to give you energy? I'm smiling. I just came back from a from a trip and meeting some customers. And that always gives me energy to hear their stories, hear how we're making an impact to them. So that's that's a big thing for me. I just just love hearing about how the world works. I think that's 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 the thing we've got at Drunfall that's quite special as we just exposed to so much. Habits and routines. I think the fun thing for me that I've always used is that I remember hearing about some professor that talked about this is you should procrastinate in a productive way. A lot of the time, I don't want to do the thing that's important to do, but if I work on the second most important thing, then you can actually achieve quite a lot because you can procrastinate by doing something valuable. 
And so that's one of the things that's okay. I keep, I can keep working for quite a long time. I might not quite get to the most important thing the far, as fast as I would want to, but at least I'm actually uh, delivering something valuable. Well, there is certainly a portion of, of the audience that is feeling a lot of relief right now. <laughs> I hear you recommend that pr procrastination can, can still be a good thing. How about some uh, recommendations for uh, books, podcasts, tools, quotes, et cetera, that you think listeners may find value in? I mean, the Startup Bible is two of them that were important to us early on was obviously Crossing the Chasm, and the other one was Four Steps to the Epiphany. That's a really good book from like, if you're just getting started, uh, there's this notion in there that my co-founder is to repeat what you loved, which is good. The, the answer isn't inside the building, you know, to get out there and talk to customers. In terms of podcasts and books, uh, podcasts, there's just so much out there. If you want some like <laughs> wisdom density with a bit of an edge, the Neville's uh, podcast is really good. There's some really interesting things we talked about really earlier, and you reminded me of what he was saying about you want to be a rational optimist. Yeah, for listeners, this is Naval Ravikant, the the yeah. and uh, Angelist, and lots of other things. Yeah, that's probably like two or three hours of talking, but uh, <laughs> forty years of good ideas for sure. Yeah, I, think I would just add on that the book that is it Eric Jorgensen maybe compiled of, of Naval's thoughts called the the Almanac of Naval Ravikant. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's two, maybe 300 pages compiled from his Twitter, you know, podcast writings, et cetera. I think I've got, you know, sentences underlined on most every page. So a good, a good compilation for sure. Uh, hey, Mike, so let's, let's uh, wrap here with some, maybe a final call to action to listeners. Who would you slash who would Drone Deploy like to hear from? Types of customers, types of future employees, et cetera. You can imagine for us and like, and who we, we want to talk to as a company is we want to talk to those leaders in business. And it could be at any level, those leaders in business that have a vision for robotics and AI and really solving really big problems. And we would love to hear uh, what that vision is and where it's going to take them and how a company like ours can help them. Well, when, when folks check out your website, they'll see you active in lots and lots of sectors across, I think, 180 countries. So clearly solving lots of problems. And uh, I, I heard and wrote down your stat earlier, maybe maybe 1% market penetration. So lots more folks who so could be knocking on your door. Hey, Mike, excited that you all are, are, are kind of addressing problems around the, what did you say here? Dull, dirty, and dangerous parts of, of work and critical infrastructure, making it safer and more and more efficient. Hey, man, we're rooting for your all success. Talk soon. Yeah, thank, thanks very much. Thanks for listening. And if you want more intel on climate tech, better habits, and deep work, then join the thousands of others who subscribe to our Substack newsletter at entrepreneursforimpact.com. Or drop me a note on LinkedIn. All right, that's all, y'all. Take care.